This is The Takeaway. I'm John Hockenberry. Thanks so much for listening. And this is going to be an hour about hope, although it's not going to feel that way in some of our conversations. From the terror scars in Oklahoma, from the bombing two decades ago, the daunting challenges in governing the world's largest democracy, India, and what it looks like to get close to the brutality in northern Nigeria, where the Islamist ISIS impersonator Boko Haram has managed to terrorize people but to do little else. Since 2009, the Nigerian government has struggled against the power of Boko Haram to taunt the government, temporarily seizing territory and terrorizing the public through bombings, beheadings and abductions, like the hundreds of schoolgirls kidnapped from a government school in the town of Chibok a year ago. Despite receiving the attention of the world for a time, the girls have never been found or rescued. Nigeria's new president, General Mohamedou Buhari, has promised to eradicate Boko Haram, And in our new partnership with Vice News, correspondent Kaj Larson takes us to the front lines of the Nigerian offensive, a place where few reporters have made it, even if they have wanted to brave the danger from both sides. Larson's new documentary for Vice is called The War Against Boko Haram, a war Larson says that at first glance in northern Nigeria, it looks like Boko Haram is winning much of northern Nigeria has been abandoned. And that's why you see these 1.5 million refugees that have you know, fled to Chad or Cameroon or some internally displaced people in Madaguri itself. And here's a sense of the terror and the deep just sort of feeling of, 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 of absolute fear that uh, people who not too long ago were just uh, citizens in, uh, in Nigeria. They attacked because they, 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 they targeted populations. They are targeting populations, gatherings of people. Right. Wherever there is a crowd, that's their target. They slaughter people like animals, which is not part of Islamic doctrine. This is not an interview that I set up. I literally was walking down the street and people were grabbing me, wanting to tell me their stories of Boko Haram. I had just come out of a doorway from an interview with another family when Elijah said, stop, please, I must tell you. It turns out um, that his brother had been killed by Boko Haram in a terrorist attack and his son had been killed by Boko Haram in a terrorist attack. And then two days later, after that interview, another market that we subsequently went to was attacked, 54 people killed by a suicide bombing. So again, I was shocked at uh, how invasive and how much Boko Haram had affected life in northern Nigeria. And the impression you get from your reporting is that not only is Boko Haram without a political mission of any kind that you can discern, but they're also extraordinarily systematic about the way they go about killing. Most of these young men ended up killing their parents, their parents, their families, their their friends. They have a list. They go one after another. Now, that's Ismail Alpha Abdul Rahim, who's a journalist who is actually working in there. I mean, consider the bravery of, of that individual. Who is that person even filing for? All right. So Ismail is a local journalist, and he was operating as our fixer. He is kind of the, the go-to fixer in the region. He's like a phenomenal person, a phenomenal source, and also has been living under the conditions of Boko Haram. He took us to the birthplace of Boko Haram. Does he discern any program, any mission, any political agenda of Boko Haram that that has any clarity to the people of Nigeria? John, I I think what you're intimating in your question is is exactly right, that as far as I could discern, there is no real agenda other than to the sort of rhetorical statement of establishing an Islamic caliphate in northern Nigeria. Now, I will tell you that 
for the people who I talk to, that mission does not resonate. And, you know, the campaign of terror and the campaign of violence certainly did not ingratiate Boko Haram to the local populace in terms of ideology. Mostly this was an organization that was kidnapping people, that was scaring people, and that was terrorizing people. And we should say that uh, while Boko Haram has no quarter in any moral sense whatsoever and has uh, uh, no reason to carry out the violence that they're carrying out, uh, certainly the context in which Boko Haram arrives is a very corrupt Nigerian government where uh, resources, natural resources, oil resources are not uh, uh, distributed in a way that can be seen as even remotely fair to the populace. Um, so there's a huge cynicism about the Nigerian government. Um, now that there is a new election and a new leader in Nigeria, is any of that likely to change? Well, you hit upon the systemic causes of Boko Haram perfectly, right? What ultimately has created the environment that allows an organization like Boko Haram to flourish is this massive inequality, right? The resource inequality between the South and the North, those are the latent conditions that created a Boko Haram. The change of government is always sort of an opportunity for a new horizon. But as you know, the kinetic portion of this fight is the easiest portion going and killing a bunch of Boko Haram fighters, like that can be figured out. The hard part is to address these really systemic conditions uh, in terms of resource allocation, in terms of education, uh, the hard work of statecraft. Uh, which has yet to be done in Nigeria. I'm going to play a, a bit of an interview that you did with someone named Jeremiah Friday, who's a private a ranger in the 72nd Mobile Strike Force, one of the government soldiers who's uh, attempting to liberate northern Nigeria. When the Boko Haram started, they were like burning churches. So people thought they were Muslims. Who are these people? The fact the Christian, the fact the Muslim. So nobody knew about them. We believe they are just they are devils. They don't have heart. And here in your unit, you have Muslims and Christians, right? Yeah. We love each other. The Muslims pray, the Christians sit around and watch them as Babudibudi, no problem. The Muslim and the Christian, we are all good. We are friends, brothers. Is there a sense of camaraderie and unity among the Nigerian forces? Because there are a lot of stories pre-election that people were just as scared of the Nigerian military as they were of Boko Haram at certain points in this conflict. And understandably so. The historical context of this latest offensive is not necessarily a positive story. In fact, there are many people who would impugn it as the latest offensive as an election ploy to re-elect President Goodluck Jonathan. That obviously didn't happen. And there have been significant um, documentation of human rights abuses and atrocities by the Nigerian military. The latest catalyst for Boko Haram, whether the real inflection point in terms of the violence of Boko Haram was 2009 when there was an extrajudicial killing of Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko mm -hmm. Haram, right? That led the law of unintended consequences to the takeover of Boko Haram by the way more radical, way more violent, way more bloodthirsty Shakal, who's the current leader of Boko Haram. So yes, all of that historical context of the Nigerian military, even back in 2009, that is is relevant. However, that being said, I think almost everybody that I spoke with was extraordinarily supportive of the idea 
of ridding northern Nigeria of Boko Haram. That sort of campaign of random terror and the kidnappings of the Chiba schoolgirls, all of those acts that have put kind of Boko Haram on the public radar, those are all real and they're all felt on the ground by the, the citizens who are trying to live their lives in Nigeria. What do people believe has happened to those girls? I think the first thing that I want to say about the Chiba schoolgirls is that is what mostly put Boko Haram on the international radar, right? People were sort of vastly unaware in the, the social media campaign, sort of an extraordinary, unprecedented viral campaign, but it also represented the asymptotic limits of what some people, you know, describe as hashtag activism. The meta effect of that campaign was almost zero. At the end of the day, it takes boots on the ground to go after these guys. Even that has proven to be fairly ineffective in terms of this very tactical element of rescuing the Chibuk girls. Most Nigerians now and the sort of collective intel from both the Nigerian side and the Nigerian military side and civilian side is that the Chibuk girls are now Chibuk moms. It's been more than nine months. The vast majority of them have been married off to Boko Haram fighters. They've found a few of them as far north as Mauritania and Mali who have been married off to different fighters or they've been transited through networks and are now married to Touareg fighters. So they're scattered. They're dispersed. There are some present in the Sambisa forest. But I think it's important to also state that there is going to be no extraordinary dramatic rescue where we find 200 schoolgirls in a warehouse. You served in, in Afghanistan. Yes. Uh, yeah. with... I'm, an o, I'm an OEF veteran. Right. And uh, with the Marines, with the Army? I'm a naval officer. I was naval a officer. Navy SEAL. Navy me. SEAL. Mm -hmm. Okay. How do you resist the urge? You know, if you've got Boko Haram in your sights to grab an AK-47 and, and uh, do your duty? Well, it's just, it's just too hard to balance the, you know, the camera and the gun at the same time. So it just doesn't work. That's not a good answer. <laughs> and your mom is not going to want to hear that answer either. I mean... Um, I made a decision in 2005 when I got off of active duty that I was um, going to trade my gun for a camera. And at first, it was actually very difficult mm -hmm. for me personally. I, was, uh, I went from being the man in the arena to the man covering the man in the arena. With this useless piece of junk called a camera. <laughs> right. And what I started to learn over time is that I was still serving I was just serving at a uniform, and I was serving in a different capacity. And, and my role and my job now um, is to really inform people as to what's happening. And over time, and this could be self-rationalization or justification, over time I've come to believe that that's actually more powerful than any individual action that I could do. It's a little bit of a cliche on the, uh, the pen is mightier than the sword, but I've, I've come to believe that that's true. Kaj Larson is a Vice News correspondent, the only Western journalist to embed on the front lines in northern Nigeria in the fight against Boko Haram. To see photos of Kaj Larson's reporting and for a link to his full documentary, visit thetakeaway.org.